Welcome to the Creative Conversations. In today's world of increasing intolerance, sometimes honest conversation between us is the only way forward. Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism, is an initiative of the Sweden-based nonprofit organization Stories for Society, which engages in transformational storytelling. The purpose of this initiative is to give rise to a force for peace by building a global network of established authors whose life stories, work, and commitments demonstrate and engage the impact of intolerance, extremism, and war. It is through the arts and our practice of rigorous and honest conversation that we can make a difference. This series records conversations between creatives for this purpose. Hello, I'm Julie Lindahl, the author of The Pendulum. With me today, I have Jessica Shaddock, uh, who is the author of the novels The Women in the Castle, a New York Times bestseller and winner of the New England Book Award, Perfect Life and the Hazards of Good Breeding, which was a New York Times notable book a Boston Globe Best Book of the Year, and a finalist for the 2003 Penn Winship Award. Her fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, Glamour, Open City, and The Tampa Review, among other publications. And her nonfiction has appeared in The New York Times, Mother Jones, Wired, and The Boston Globe. She lives with her husband and three children in Brookline, Massachusetts. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. You're going to tell us a little bit about the women in the castle and do a reading for us, right? Yes, mm-hmm. I'd be happy to. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me here. Mm-hmm. Please go ahead. Okay. So The Women in the Castle is a novel about three German women uh, at the end of the war. And it begins in June of 1945, so right at the very, the very end. And it is the story of these three women who come together because they are, at least on the surface of things, all widows of resistors, men who were executed for their roles in the 20th of July failed assassination attempt on Hitler's life in 1944. As the story unfolds, however, you learn that they're not all exactly who they at first appeared to be. And in fact, uh, their views and experiences of the last seven to ten years really span the gamut of the German experience of that time. So I really think of it as a book that is as much about complicity as it is about resistance. And it is set really in the kind of gray edges around the dark center of the Holocaust. So let's hear some of it. Sure. So I will read a section that I don't usually read, but that I think will be a good place to kick off our conversation. And it actually comes about almost three quarters of the way through the book. And it goes, it's from the perspective of one of these widows and flashes back to her time during the war. So from Anya's perspective. On Saturday nights, Rainer builds a wonderful bonfire, and the boys sing and have contests. Who can spring the fastest, jump the farthest, balance the longest on a fallen tree limb? Rainer is in his element here with so many adoring young people looking to him for guidance. In the future, Anya's daughter will send her son to an American summer camp. 
It's all about archery and soccer and fishing and camping, how to be a good citizen and a good friend, how to be a confident young man, she will tell Anya. She will say it in a wry tone that suggests she sees something amusing about this. But that's beautiful, Anya will say. It's like what we did in our youth lager. Except they don't teach them to kill Jews at Camp Wayakona, her daughter will exclaim. My God, mother, you can't seriously compare a New England summer camp to a Nazi youth lager. But we didn't teach them to kill Jews, Anya will protest mildly. We didn't even talk about Jews. Her daughter will stare at her as if she is insane. But Hitler did, she will say, as if speaking to a child. Didn't you hear what he was saying? No, Anya will say, shaking her head. I was too busy or too stupid. But this is not exactly true. She was busy, but she was not stupid. And she did listen to Hitler, though she does not recall what she actually heard. She remembers gathering around the radio in the elegant dining room with murals of pastoral farm scenes painted on the walls. She remembers the boys in their pajamas, exhausted from a day of physical exertion, sprawled across the wood floors, smelling of fresh hay and dust and clean sweat. There was great excitement about listening to the Führer. She remembers his exhortations and energy, his talk of building and unifying the Reich, the unique and wonderful qualities of the German folk. But she does not remember the ugly quotes her daughter confronts her with. Maybe because, at the time, what she heard did not seem radical. Listening to the radio at that first lager in 1936, Anya believes Hitler's assertions that Jews are rich businessmen who have profited from Germany's troubles and taken the best jobs in Germany, and that those who are not rich, which is to say mostly the Eastern Jews who have immigrated here from Poland, Romania, and the Baltic, are freeloaders or Bolsheviks. They are Trotsky followers the same people who set the Reichstag on fire and created the Bavarian Soviet Republic. Her grasp of the details is vague, but she understands this last group of agitators is dangerous. She accepts this in the abstract, of course. The actual Jews she knows are different. Herr Goldblum, the grocer, or the Kornbluth girls from her grammar school, for example, are neither rich nor Bolshevik. But how can Hitler know who is a good Jew and who isn't? Easier to evict them all and prevent infiltration. Where they will go, back to Poland, Romania, wherever they came from, America, Madagascar, is not Anya's concern. Thank you. I'm so happy you chose to read that passage because... I think we can have a a whole conversation about that. There's so much in it. And and I guess before I go any further, it's probably a good idea for us to admit our family backgrounds and to share them, which is one of the things that brought us together, apart from the fact that we're both writers. So in my case, my grandparents were 
SS in occupied Poland throughout the duration of World War II and fled to Brazil in the post-war era because of the things they had done during the war. You also have a background which is different, but so the same but not the same, so <laughs> to speak. Maybe you can share that. Sure. Um, the seeds for this novel definitely come from a very personal place for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am half German. My mother was born in Germany in 1943, in the middle of the war. And my grandparents were what I always referred to as ordinary Germans. With great shame, however, I should add. I grew up with a lot of feelings of shame about being half German. They were very much kind of typical of their generation. They joined the Nazi party in 1937, and that was in order to be able to lead a youth logger like the one that I've just described here in the passage that I read. Uh, It was part of a program that actually preceded Hitler and the National Socialists, but became rolled into the their umbrella. Mm-hmm. And it was called the Landjahrlager. And all 14 and 15-year-old boys and girls separately were supposed to spend a year living on the land, as they say in Germany, learning agriculture and living together in these kind of camps settings that were supposed to sort of equalize, ironically, the playing field because it was children of industrial workers from the cities and children of the landed aristocracy all living together in these loggers. So my grandparents joined in order to lead one of these together. And after that, uh, I think in, in 1940 or 41, I should know this, um, my grandfather was drafted and went into the Wehrmacht. Uh, and my grandmother then went to live with her parents in Dortmund and then shortly thereafter they were bombed out of that house and she became again like many Germans of her generation a refugee basically um, looking for a home and they ended up on a, a family member's farm with many other people who had come there remote cousins and and other people bombed out of their homes and displaced by various things So their experience was from sort of fairly close to the beginning of the war, a very, I mean, in some ways, the ordinary German moniker holds. It's certainly not an exonerating one, but um, they were somewhat typical. Yes, yeah. So the interesting part here, too, is that we're both part German, part something else, Um, in my case part several other things, in your case, part American, Mm -hmm. looking in at this as granddaughters, really. And I can sense a bit of that in this passage, some of your background. I I heard this this, um, voice in there, in that passage, which was making an effort to understand. But then I heard another voice in this passage, which was more Anya's voice, uh, which was taking a kind of dangerous comfort in the normalization of all this ideology and and racism and particularly the passage that you know talks about the division between Jews and and 
Um, and also, also list the, the whole passage about listening to Hitler and on the radio and everybody sort of snuggling up together uh, and, and making it sort of feel almost like, oh, yeah, I can understand that. You know, that's, that's kind of normal. That sounds, sounds like a perfectly normal thing to do. So there are these two, two different perspectives on the situation that come through in that passage. One is Anya's, but one is somebody, somebody else's. And somewhere I think that's kind of yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, and, and maybe you could comment on what you hear and see in this passage. Well, I definitely think that, uh, you know, this book took me over seven years to write. And a lot of that was doing research. But the original seeds of it, as I said, came from learning my grandmother's story and from a long period of time of interviewing my grandmother. At one point, very... I spent a summer actually on the farm interviewing her when I was in my 20s, but then for the rest of her life, she and I would have conversations about this. And there was a lot of me struggling to understand how a woman I knew as open-minded, inquisitive, generous, and curious about the world and open to it could have been a part of something so evil and how she could have, as she kept insisting, not known and what that really meant. I still don't have a total verdict on what it means when someone like my grandmother says, I didn't know. I think that there are so many degrees of gray within the sort of black and white context of knowing or not knowing. But my efforts to kind of investigate that and understood what was included in that, and especially to understand what I think was a huge part of it, which is not wanting to know and telling yourself false narratives, embracing narratives that are fed to you and then never cross-examining them, and kind of retelling them to yourself in a way that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I did try to inhabit that. And I think that the other thing that, that your question touches on for me is this sense that, I guess it, to me, it feels really important that we do try to do that kind of understanding because so often, at least the way I learned in school about the Holocaust and the way many people uh, in America anyway, I think still think of it, is this this very sort of hatred-driven, which obviously it was, but a, a situation that was almost driven by, as if, as if every German had this inner hatred that just needed to be tapped into. And once it was tapped into, the Holocaust ensued. And it's a really distancing narrative for us, I think, because as Americans, we, it enables us to quickly say, oh, well, we don't have that. Oh, gosh, they were monsters. And they, they, you know, they just were filled with this virulent anti-Semitism that we don't really know about or have to that, you know, even if you acknowledge that there's some anti-Semitism in America, we don't have it to that degree. And it kind of lets us off the hook of trying to examine what happened more closely and see parallels with things that could happen for us. So to me, this this section that I read is very much looking at those other rationalizations that Germans used and the things that did compel them to embrace Hitler and Nazism that weren't 
purely about this sort of very simplistic anti-Semitism and hate, hatred. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a lot of context there. It, mm-hmm. It's it's the kind of um, they're the individuals, and then they're the context, and and this kind of contextualization. Although at the same time, we have to be very careful. It's important not to slide from contextualization into normalization. Uh, that's the danger. As long as we can say, yes, I can understand that context. I can understand, I can see how, I can see her chain of thinking. I can see how she might think that way. I can see how she might slide into this. Still, it's important not to say, I understand and, well, that's really quite normal. That's, you know, quite quite okay. Right. Uh, it's interesting that uh, both you and I were motivated by conversations with our grandmothers uh, because the story I wrote and researched over years mainly emerged from conversations with with my granny who probably had stronger views, it sounds like, than your grandmother was more to the right. She was an SS wife. It's a kind of diff- different level of engagement. Uh, she was in, uh, involved in women's organizations that were instructing Nazi women how to raise their children for the struggle and things like that. So she was probably less questioning of her own thoughts uh, and behavior. But then again, we don't know. We don't. We don't know how 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 questioning they were then. We don't know how questioning uh, Anya was then, actually, because mm-hmm. this is quite a while later, which actually brings me to a question that I'd, or a, an area I'd like to skip to here, which is a little bit lower down in my list of things to discuss, but it's coming up now, which is the question of memory, because this is Anya going back and recalling what she thought and and she kind of stumbles around a little bit at some point she says maybe because at that time what she heard did not seem radical but she's not sure it's a it's a kind of maybe right mm-hmm. one of the the difficulties i think in in understanding if you like is the question of whether pure memory actually exists <laughs> This right. is a very big problem uh, for us uh, yeah. as granddaughters and as writers. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, can we ever really recount how we reacted at a certain point in time or our motivations for doing things at a certain point in time? Did you encounter that? As you were working? Yeah, I, I would say that my I began my interviews with my grandmother on a very basic level. I did not begin with the question, partly because I was young, and this was way before I started writing yes. this book. Mm-hmm. And I started with, what was it like? Where were you living? Mm-hmm. What could you eat? What mm-hmm. did you not have to eat? How did you get your clothes? Mm-hmm. Where were the children in school? Mm-hmm. And those questions, I think, ground a person in a more concrete level of memory. So we took it from there. But I absolutely agree with you that certainly when you start getting into the more abstract questions, what did you know when? How did you think about this at the time? It's really hard to have anything pure. And I definitely think that there is a large 
degree of what you want to remember about yourself and how you want to how you want to shape your own narrative. Mm -hmm. So not only are we talking about the narratives that people buy into Mm -hmm. that enable them to embrace things that in retrospect seem obviously horrific, but also the narratives that they create in retrospect. Oh, I did this because Mm -hmm. this, and actually I didn't, I didn't hear anything Hitler was saying because I was so busy just trying to put food on the table and avoid dropping bombs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Was that really exactly what was happening? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that the more we talk about it, the more we ask those questions and the more we kind of take a little bit of a, you know, poke a little thumb into those places, the more we actually stir up truths. Mm-hmm. Well, we also sat there and saw our grandmother's reactions, which is also gives us a, a little lead as well. They might say one thing, but I'm not suggesting that your grandmother was lying. Uh, in my case, my grandmother did lie about certain very important things. And so you can see how they answer the question as well, which, which is also uh, is a kind of... It's, it's, it's data, mm-hmm. so to speak. Well, this makes me think of something that, to me, is kind of illustrative, both of what we're talking about in terms of memory and also in terms of, again, the narratives that people buy into. There was a point at which I was trying to do that kind of poking at my grandmother. And I, I said, you know, she kept insisting you have to believe me, I didn't know. We didn't know. And I said, I'll preface that by saying, I think what she meant was they didn't know about the extermination camps. She was not saying, and I think it would be pretty much impossible for anyone to assert that they didn't know Jews were being shipped off to settlements, camps, whatever they were sort of terming them. Um, but what was actually happening there, possibly if with some degree of commitment to obfuscating the truth from yourself, you could not know. Anyway, I was trying to press on that that assertion. And I said, well, if you didn't know, what did you think when you found out? Where? How did you first find out? And I pictured her answer was going to fall along the lines of the where were you when JFK was assassinated, which is a question that if you ask anyone of that generation in America, they can tell you immediately. I was at the dining room table and I heard it on the radio. And she said, oh, I don't know. I don't remember. And I thought, okay, the gig is up. You knew. What, What is this? But then she explained something which confuses that idea. She said, well, when I first saw those pictures, and she was referring to the sort of the pictures that are all seared into all of our minds now um, of the liberation of Dachau and Buchenwald. She said, I first saw those in the context of Nazi propaganda at the end of the war. They said, this is allied propaganda, and these are actually pictures of German prisoners of war in Russian prison camps. And the allies just want you to think that this is what we've done with Jews. Can I know unequivocally that she 
fully and wholeheartedly embraced that without questioning it at that point in the war, I don't know. I think it meant a great deal to her to feel that that was what had happened um, and to understand about herself, oh, I didn't, I didn't see this and I, I saw it in this way and that's why it didn't have this effect on me. But it is a little bit the beginning of what I think of as the sort of, it's not the beginning, it's kind of the end, it's really the end result of the upside-down world of that time. Yeah, absolutely. This um, question of this conversation we're having now does take us into another topic, which is the one that I find most people want to raise with me when I'm interviewed, and that is the topic of forgiveness. Whether that generation can be forgiven, those individuals who committed crimes or were bystanders or whatever can be forgiven for allowing this to happen. I always feel very confused personally when the topic of forgiveness comes up for me and people ask me about it because what comes up in my mind is forgiveness by whom, for whom, for what because the implication is also should I seek forgiveness Uh, and overall I found forgiveness to be quite a frustrating topic for me it's quite obvious that the victims of the Holocaust who survived should decide whether they want to forgive the perpetrators or not that's to me how simple it is how do you see it? Yeah, this, I agree. The subject of forgiveness always comes up in, in every talk that I give. And I find it to be a very reductive prism through which to view this time. Because it puts every person who's asked, do you forgive this? Do you not forgive this? In the position of judging. And the answer is black and white. Yes or no. And that's it. And it kind of shuts down the whole idea of trying to achieve any kind of understanding. And in fact, it also sort of, I would say, puts some barriers around the attempt to try to understand. For a long time, I felt really almost transgressive in making the effort to try to understand, because I think that this idea of understanding being equated with forgiveness Mm -hmm. has really dampened or kind of put a lid on the whole ability to ask questions and to discuss. And certainly I think for my grandmother was a very unusual person for her generation in that she wanted to talk about this time. She wanted to try to be understood and was actively grappling with it and willing to take me there. People like my grandfather were much more typical. He did not want to talk about it. He did not want to go there. And I think a lot of that was because there was this sense that he might say something wrong. He, there were too many of these kind of guardrails around this. And I do think that forgiveness and that lens plays a role in erecting all these guardrails that make people feel hemmed in. That said, I do think what you said first is very true. If forgiveness plays a role here, it is for the victims of the Holocaust, and it is up to them to decide that. It certainly doesn't feel like something I would even be in a privileged position to bestow or not bestow. 
I found it similarly in my own journey to figure out what my grandparents had got up to in occupied Poland to be kind of a rat wheel, if you like, because I also uh, interviewed a number of people who survived my grandfather's violence, and because he he was a violent person. At some point in the journey, I became so upset by what I was hearing that there was this feeling that welled up in me that I wanted to seek forgiveness, but it was one of the one of my grandfather's victims who put me on what I think is a better track and what he also thought was a better track, which was to say, you know, this wasn't your fault and so therefore you cannot seek forgiveness for it. You could do other things. You could take responsibility. So that takes me to another question. Mm -hmm. Is the women in the castle your way of taking responsibility? Yeah, it's. I was just going to say, when you said that, I think that, that responsibility is a good word here. And it's interesting to me when I have talked with Germans of my generation, many, certainly not all, but have the idea, first and foremost, this wasn't my my generation didn't do this and this isn't this isn't about me and it's very important to know and i recognize how horrible it was but i stand outside of this problem and i think i can't speak to how that plays within german society i think that's probably an important position in some ways but for me i always feel taken aback because i feel of course i wasn't alive during this time of course i'm not personally responsible but I have to take on some responsibility because who else is going to? And I think that if we could all look at where we come from, which I know is not possible for everyone. There are plenty of people who don't have much of a lens on who their grandparents were, um, let alone great-grandparents. Or, But I feel if we can try to understand where we come from, we can then move forward with some extra responsibility about that. And that's the only way we can make progress. So I guess when I first kind of posed the question to myself, my grandparents were Nazis. What do I do about that? I sort of flailed around looking for the answer. And what presented itself to me ultimately was talk about it. Be open about it. And get conversations going about it. Not to be a total American who feels that there's some, I'm, I'm deeply skeptical of, the, of our talk culture that sort of seems to feel that if we, you know, anything can be achieved through talking. But at the same time, I feel like if we, anything that has the level of taboos around it, that this subject and Germans um, and the Holocaust and any of the sort of legacy that that leaves with with German families, the level of taboos can only be dangerous. So I think trying to break through some of them by putting things on the table is a small step toward a better place. Indeed, and uh, you say that the level of taboos is dangerous, and that certainly is something that I experienced very intensely in my own family, um, my own extended family, in which the taboos were of such a nature and so loaded and heavy that they crushed relationships as mm -hmm. well. Uh, I don't know if, if your experience was that they, 
that this these taboos constrained certain relationships. But perhaps with your grandfather, as you mentioned, he wanted to stay away from this topic. Yeah, I think of that definitely. And in writing this book and spending a lot of time thinking about these three characters who are fully fictional, um, but who represent kind of different experiences of that time, and thinking about what it was like to live with yourself Mm -hmm. after the war. So you have this real schism in your life where you've spent the first however many years my these three women in my book are are in their um late 20s early 30s during the war you've spent that much time a part of a society which then is revealed to have been deeply sick and in the case of some of the characters not only have spent time in that society and been a part of it but also to have fully embraced this horrific ideology that has then been revealed to be a kind of evil incarnate. How do you then pick up, now it's June of 1945, the gig is up on all of that. Where do you go from there? And how do you reconcile the two halves of your life? And how do you deal with that? Um, That to me is endlessly fascinating. And it's also, I would put in a plug for fiction in that that is the province of novels and stories, right? Where that is the only place I I think of the the people of that time um, were confronted with their pasts, but yet didn't talk about it at all, right? From from everything I understand about the 50s in Germany and the late 40s, there was no conversation among people of how they were dealing with their pasts. It was absolutely shut down, absolutely taboo. Maybe behind closed doors, there was a little mumbling about what ills had, you know, what wrongs had been done to you. But there was no real overt kind of talking about what did, what, how, what did I do? What, how was I a part of this? And, and I think that all of that thinking had to happen in people's minds. And the mind is the palette of the novel so I was interested in what you had to say about living in a society that's deeply sick and not being able to see Mm -hmm. that at the moment when you're living in Mm -hmm. it do you think we'll look back at this time in America and say the same thing I hope not Mm -hmm. but it's hard not to see it that way sometimes or maybe we are all already able to look at what we were in and say that was deeply sick because the crisis has already erupted the crisis of conscience has already erupted in my perspective yeah so I I think one thing that I learned from thinking about these characters and researching my book was how different everything looks from the gaze of history in the future right I think it's impossible right now to see how this time will look in the future. But of course, certainly, there are some eerie echoes and parallels, not the least of which is something that you, I wanted to get back to, you were touching on your your grandfather having been, you said he was a violent man. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think about in German society, and that is something, during the war and before the war, um, that I think has a lot of bearing on how we move into the future and how we live our lives today is what kind of people 
are being elevated to positions of power. Because sometimes there's this kind of uniform sense, oh, all Nazis were evil. Anyone who was in the Nazi party was 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 deeply corrupt and and filled with hate. But in fact, I think there were so many people who were in this kind of gray zone that we've talked about now, but the people in charge and the leaders were people who a good and healthy society represses and puts down and contains, but a sick society elevates. Yeah. The sociopaths, those who have huge anger problems, um, those people ended up being in those positions. It makes me think a lot about subjects that can seem really nebulous, but about the character of our leaders and the people that we are elevating today. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I mean, my grandfather wasn't um, very senior in the military wing of the SS, but he ended up having quite a lot of influence in uh, certain aspects of what the SS was doing in taking over vast areas of land in occupied Poland and transforming it into productive land for the Reich and in the process also hurt an awful lot of people, enslaved people, uh, was complicit in the murder of people, and also ended up being violent in his own family because of the way the war affected him. But an interesting case was that, I mean, I think the other problem is how long this takes to the sickness takes to go away because even after the war his boss uh, who was very senior in the SS became a minister in the new wow. West German government Wow! and so I think something else to consider is um, that once you have this illness that pushes these violent and sick people into power that's yeah. a manifestation, right? We yeah. see that today everywhere. Yeah. It's quite a long process to get rid of yeah. uh, and to, to get it to wash out of the system. Yeah. And then the question is, how do we keep it out of the system? Because what we're seeing now, even in Germany, is political victories by people who, to my mind, represent a new illness. Yeah. Well, that's. I wish we had an answer to that problem, right? How do yeah. we keep it out of the system? But I know that one thing that I, I think often when I have conversations like this, we kind of come to, well, what, what did you learn from looking at all this? What did you learn from thinking about this? And I do think one very little piece that's also a very big piece of what we can do to keep that kind of, let's call it an illness at bay is for every individual to cross-examine their narratives, to watch MSNBC and Fox News, to then ask yourself the questions, but why is this something that's being reported on this way? What is the other side of that story? And even if we have a very hard time getting clear on what exactly the facts of a thing are, know that we're seeing different sides of it because that is something that was absolutely missing in Germany at that time. The sense of any other side of any story. And there was so much from what I learned, mostly from my research, but also to some extent from talking with my grandmother, was how little people really had the practice of 
examining things from both sides. I think another word for what you're talking about is being able to... Oh, complexity is the word, mm-hmm. but being able to handle complexity is the mm-hmm. phrase I'm looking for. And uh, I think one of the ways out is to ensure that we educate for complexity, yep. which may not necessarily be what the education systems that grew out of the Industrial Revolution were designed for. Right, that's true. Uh, which is what we're in some ways, in some places, in many places, actually still living with, we need a new kind of education that educates people to be always asking questions, more questions, asking more questions than coming to more conclusions. Yeah, Uh, And being able to hold it all, all at once, because after all, that's what you have in this passage that you Mm -hmm. read. In the passage, what's beautiful about the passage, what's credible about it, what is human about it, is it holds all the sides of this human being at once. And you can see that some of her thinking is detrimental to society, but you can also see that she's a human being and you can feel for her. And unless we can perceive that kind of complexity. Somebody who goes to that passage and says, well, that's just an evil person. That person is is going to contribute to the illness. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you like that passage in that way. I do feel that that complexity ties in also to um, being able to hold that complexity also ties into the other main thing that I've taken from this is distrust simple answers to complicated problems and being able to feel that there's going to be some level of mess around human life no matter how it works and not trying to make sort of not being drawn overly to cut and dry symptoms um, or solutions rather yeah, the yeah. wall comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, there are lots of things like that, both in the United States and where I live in Sweden, yeah. particularly in response to the refugee and immigration situation yeah. in the world. And perhaps we could just touch on that before we start yeah. to round off, because it struck me that particularly the the passage here about different types of Jews and and then the Jews who are my neighbors, are good people who are different from those other people, but at the same time we can't distinguish between these different types, so Hitler was probably right to get rid of, just the only solution then is to get rid of all of them and send them somewhere else, right? Right. And to me, you could take that passage and I could easily imagine someone who is a member of an anti-immigrant party in Europe today with a few modifications saying more or less exactly the same thing about other groups of people, groups of people who have perhaps come from uh, Syria and Afghanistan, so Muslims. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. There is in there a, a, a distinct similarity for me there. Now, there are people who are saying it's outrageous to make any comparisons between the persecution of Jews during the 1930s uh, and the Holocaust to today, once you start going down this road of saying, well, that passage could just as well be somebody in an anti-immigrant party today. 
but and then there are some people who jump, make this mental leap and say you can't compare anything that's to do with with the Holocaust or what happened then, uh, and and to Jewish people then to anything that's happened today because what happened then is just so apart and so separate and was so unique in human history that that it's just not and there are institutions. Right in the United States, which I won't name, yeah. uh, which are, are, are actually intimating the same thing. What's yeah. your response to that? You know, I guess what there's what I like to think, and then there's a reality that may or may not reflect that. But what I like to think is that that was a viewpoint that was very important for a long time because there was this voice, especially from within Germany, saying of Holocaust deniers. Mm-hmm and of people who were saying this didn't really happen or it wasn't really that bad. And the absolute assertion had to be made. This did happen. Here is the evidence. This is this hugely particular thing. And I think that the particularity of it and uniqueness of it came out of that attempt to make sure that it was recorded as it needed to be. But I guess what I like to think is that we are now, here we are, this far away from it. Time continues to move forward. We're ready for a new level of understanding of the Holocaust. And we're now ready to see some of the parallels, which maybe before seemed dangerous to us. That it was dangerous to make equivocations because they were done so often in service of, uh, well, you know, the, the Jews suffered, but Germans suffered too. Now we're at a different point. And to say this happened and, and Hitler was getting rid of using, using the idea of Jewish Bolshevik terrorists as a reason to get rid of all Jews from Germany. Hey, that reminds us of trying to separate terrorists out of immigrant groups coming into our country today. It's, I think, hopefully we're kind of at a level now of understanding of the Holocaust that we can go to that place and, and see parallels without saying we're calling this apples and apples. We know it's apples and oranges. Yeah. We know this apple is a big, bad yeah. apple. Right. But over here, let's talk about how it can relate to this. I, I guess I think we're getting to that place. Yeah, and maybe that is kind of our job as the grandchildren to be able to step forward and, and again, complexity. On the one hand, say, yes, that was the most miserable and a horrid atrocity that I can think of in human history, although I, I, yeah, there were others, but it is, it has certain features that distinguish it from everything else. Also, I would add that the comparison isn't of the brutality and horror of the Holocaust. And I think a lot of the comparisons are coming not to say there's something that's equally, there's some horrific extermination camp that's equally bad as one of these extermination camps. The comparisons are about the things that led ultimately to that place. And when we're talking about the factors that led to that, that to me is where the fruitful comparison lies. Exactly. And this is the point I was going to make, that there's a confusion going on right there, which which is very unfortunate because there's a whole lot of learning that can get just get lost. Yeah. 
I think that we unfortunately probably have to round off, but before we do, I wanted to ask you one last thing. We talked a bit about what can be done, but what can we do in order to prevent a new societal illness from manifesting itself in genocide? I mean, it is in certain parts of the world, but where we stand. But let's take it down to the level of what can we as authors do and what can we as granddaughters of the perpetrators, I'll say in my case, do. Yeah, and I would say the enablers for sure in my case. I think my answer remains that it's talk about it, be open about it, raise the conversation, and encourage reflection. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to The Creative Conversations, a production of Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at storiesforsociety.com.